the 11th hour, I got a whole bunch of other questions. So I'll probably do multiple weeks of this. As long as there's questions, I'll answer it. So I'm going to answer these two today. And it may take, it's probably going to take the whole time. Hopefully, I'll get through the two of them. If not, we'll just put a caboose on it and uh, jump ahead. So let me have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our Bibles. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this book, Lord, and the Holy Spirit and the faith, Lord, that you delivered to the saints, Father. Help us to contend for it. Help us to have the right heart attitude, Lord, as we approach your word, Father. You said if we come with idols in our heart, you answer us according to those idols. And I pray, Lord, we have an open mind. Help me, Lord, to be able to teach effectively. I am not sufficient for these things, Father. I confess my inability to you now. But these dear folks, Lord, came here with their Bibles open and pens in hand. And we want to learn something, Holy Spirit. Amen. So I pray you teach us, Lord. Guide us, reprove, uh, rebuke, exhort, teach, whatever you want to do, Lord. We're here for my sister Nayeli, Father. Thank you. She's such a trooper, Lord. She just uh, keeps on keeping on. But I know she's in pain, discomfort, Lord, the situation with her, the dental thing, Lord, her, her tooth, her jaw. Lord, I just pray you just make a smooth sailing with this specialist, Lord. Help them to be able to give some relief and uh, uh, the least invasive way to fix it, Lord, that she might be able to just enjoy time with her family. Lord, thank you for my son Christian being able to be here tonight, Lord, and be able to play basketball and tennis the last few days. Lord, we just, uh, we don't... Um, we don't uh, underestimate your mercies, Father. They're new every morning, Lord. And I, like we prayed before church, Lord, tonight, and my brother Josh said, uh, Jacob said, I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies, Lord. And we are not worthy of your mercies, Lord. We're poor and needy, Father, but you think upon us because you're a great God, Father. And we think, Lord, of our dear uh, brothers here, Lord, Aaron and Chong, and even Jacob in California, Father, our servicemen. Lord, we pray you protect them, guide them, keep them from the evil, Father. Uh, use them, Lord, help them to be a light that shines in a dark place. Uh, Lord, I pray you bring them back to their families safely and quickly, Lord, and help them fulfill whatever mission you have for them, Father. They're there for a reason. Help them to see it, to seize it, and to kind of be rewarded for it, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. So let's go, let's turn in our Bibles. We're good? Book of Acts chapter 2, all right? Now this was a, this question came as a bit of a, a follow-up from, a, I guess, a message I, uh, we preached a couple of weeks ago about the amazing if and, and free will. So here's the question, and then we'll dive into it a little bit tonight. And the question is, does God's foreknowledge mean our actions are predetermined? In other words, does God's foreknowledge cancel our free will? The short answer is no. But I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, you know, justify what I'm doing here tonight. So I gotta like do this. So what's wrong? I got something that way. Does our foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge, cancel out our free will? Now, the Greeks and Shakespeare wrestled with this question forever. I mean, this was the question of uh, of the Greek dramatists, like uh, Sophocles would write plays, like Oedipus Rex, where they would wrestle, like, do you have any say in how your life goes? And then uh, Shakespeare would write, you know, Hamlet or Othello or Macbeth, and they would wrestle with, is there free will? Is there fate? Are we at the mercy of things? Yeah, I know it's something went out. Uh, higher than ourselves. But the question, what I want to say right now is this. Um, predestination, which is a fancy word these days that people like to throw around, is not the same as foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge... But predestination is a very, very abused word in the Bible. So let's talk about foreknowledge, right? Let's look at the book of Acts, chapter 2. God has foreknowledge. 
The Bible says God has foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? Well, it's very easy, class. Let's just break the word down. The prefix for, meaning happening before, and knowledge, meaning you know what's going to happen. So you know what God does? God knows beforehand what's going to happen. Hence the word foreknowledge, right? God has foreknowledge because God knows beforehand what's going to happen. Now, please don't use that at Vegas to bet on the NBA championships or anything because it doesn't work that way, all right? Now, look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at how the Bible says that God has foreknowledge. Acts chapter 2, look at verse number 22. Acts 2, 22, right? The uh, apostle Peter is preaching, and he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says of Jesus Christ at verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in uh, the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. There's that expression, it appears twice. The foreknowledge of God, right? It says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So what does that mean? That Peter is saying God knew that Israel was going to crucify Jesus Christ. Wasn't a shock. God knew they were going to deliver him up. God knew the nation was going to turn on him. God even knew how they were going to kill him. That's why David could write about it a thousand years before it happened. He'd be crucified and pierced, right? God had foreknowledge of that event. Did he make them do it? No. But he knew they would. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 1, Another, the second time God speaks about that phrase, the foreknowledge of God, the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, look at verse 1. This is question and answer, so we're doing a lot of Bible study here. I'll try to slip some preaching in, but it's a lot of Bible study. 1 Peter 1, and the reason why we have to know this is because this Reformed theology this Calvinist nonsense, and if you're watching at home and you're a Calvinist, nonsense it is. It is sweeping through Bible churches everywhere. It is like a cancer that just gets in there, it bites, and like a poison it goes in there and splits churches, turns people inside out, and messes up everything about the way they look at their Bible, look at God, and look at people, right? It's insidious, it's wicked, it's false, it's devilish, it's a damnable doctrine. You say, Pat, do you really feel strongly about it? Yes, I do, right? Because these people also come to you with a pious garb. They make you feel like you're too stupid to know the Bible like they do. And that's what drives me crazy. That's what strips my gears more than anything else. Those good words and fair speeches. And they're always reading somebody else's book, and they can quote the fathers and quote this guy and make up big words like supersessionism. Chris told me that. Supersessionism, right, which is a big word that's nowhere in the Bible. Sounds like soup and salad to me. It makes me hungry. But um, I am going to get in so much trouble. Let's read the Bible. First Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Please notice again, foreknowledge of God. Please notice that God's election is based on foreknowledge. Not predestination, foreknowledge. Elect through, according to the 
foreknowledge of God, not the predestination of God or the predetermination of God. You see what he says? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not going to go into all of that, but please notice that God chose there the vehicle, not the passengers. God said He foreknew all the people that were sanctified by the Spirit, that obeyed and sprinkled the blood of Jesus Christ, they would become elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God chose the vehicle, not the passengers. Go to Romans 11, right? Like I said, that verse, I know, is a lot in that verse. I'm just going to leave it at that. Romans 11, right? The double application of that verse, the Jewish application, the church application. Ask Josh. Romans 11, verse 1. Romans 11, 1. Another verse on foreknowledge. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Now, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are like this little parenthetical in the book of Romans. The theme of Romans is justification by faith. One, two, three, four, five, and then six, seven, eight, right? And then 9, 10, 11, it's like, how does Israel fit into the situation now? So in 11, he's talking about Israel's relationship to the church now being grafted in. And he says in 11, 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people, meaning Israel, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew, right? God knew beforehand that Israel would reject Jesus Christ, and that's how God in his back pocket had the plan to bring the church into fruition like we see today. Praise God for that, right? God knew. He wasn't caught off guard when Israel rejected her Messiah. He was wearing his cards very close to his chest. He had the church on his mind. It was a mystery, and God knew his people would turn away, and through their fall, salvation would come unto the Gentiles, and all the goys in the room say amen to that, amen? Now, Romans 8.29 is a great verse, right? Let's go one more on this. Romans 8.29. This verse if nothing else, Romans 8.29 clearly differentiates predestination and foreknowledge. It says, without mincing words, going to the Greek, or doing anything else, that foreknowledge and predestination are not the same. Look, it's right there. For whom he did foreknow, that's one, he also did predestinate. So they're not the same predestination is not the same as foreknowledge because he says the word also, right? He foreknew some people, and the people that he foreknew would get saved. He also did predestinate them to something else. So I'm just trying to establish right now, I got so nervous, my voice cracked. I'm just trying to establish right now that number one, predestination is not the same thing as foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge. Amen? He's omnipotent. He knows everything. So He knows the end from the beginning. But predestination means that you are a robot in His plan. That you have no free will. No matter what they say, you have no free will. If predestination is true, that God has not only known beforehand, but He's determined beforehand what you would do. And that's a very different animal, which opens up a lot of big problems. So let's talk about predestination number two now. Right? Predestination. Predestination is, quote, the foreordaining of events. The decree of God, which he hath from eternity unchangeably appointed or determined whatever comes to pass. So predestination has to do with, right, predestination. I'll write something to 
justify the price of admission. Predestination means that it is already determined that God made some kind of decision in eternity past who was going to get saved, who was going to get lost. This is Calvin's big hobby horse, right? That in eternity past, in his sovereignty, God decided you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to hell, and his plan is going to be worked out according to his will, and nothing's going to change it, and everything is determined. But is that really true? What was determined? Romans 8.29. Let's look at what was determined. Romans 8.29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that's the one who got saved, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. You know where the predestination happens? After you get saved. God predestinated that those who were saved would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's where predestination happens. When you call on the Lord Jesus Christ and you get in Christ, God says, I'm sorry, brother, your fate is sealed. You're going to be just like Jesus Christ one day. I'm going to get rid of all that dross. I'm going to conform you to His image. Take that in for a second. If you're saved here today, all the baggage you carry, all the scars on your mind and your heart, all the mistakes you've made, one day that dross is all going to get burned away at the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to come forth as gold. You're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is what God predestinated to the people whom He foreknew. He said, I, yes, sir. Calvinists, when do they, I, I guess that they, at the end of their life, that's when, he, that's when they find out if they were... That's a great question. A, a Calvinist doesn't ever really know for sure. I guess, I guess at the end of their life, which is kind of scary, make, makes them a lot like a lot of other religious like people. Baby dies, they don't know what they have no idea. They don't know. They don't know. Okay. They don't know. They don't know for sure. They're counting on that their works will be bringing forth fruit because the saints, the last P of the tulip in Calvinism, is the perseverance of the saints. That if you're truly one of the elect, your life will bring forth that fruit that will manifest that you are. But if you ask an honest Calvinist, some of them are very kind of nervous about their salvation because you don't really know for sure. There is no, like, eternal security like we know in the Scriptures, right? So let's, uh, let's keep going here. Let's look at Ephesians 1. Let's look at more of this stuff about the, the predestination now. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, look at verse 3. Ephesians 1. <clears throat> All right, Ephesians 1. The Bible says... Blessed be the God, in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Where? In Christ. When did you get in Christ? When you got saved. You were not in Christ in eternity. Did I just get really loud? Uh, you were not in Christ in eternity past, right? Um, verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him. That's so important. You got in Him, and then you got chosen. Chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. The predestination is to be conformed to the image of the Son. Amen. That's what that adoption He's talking about with. Let's, he says having predestinated us 
unto the adoption. Let's talk about that adoption. Let's look at Romans 8. What's that adoption all about? Let's look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 15. Romans 8, verse 15. You see, in Calvin's system, you got a big problem. Because in Calvin's system, you had to be predestinated before the foundation of the world, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then somehow you got out of Christ and got into Adam, right? Because you were born in sin. And then you got back out of Adam and got back into Christ, right? Which is a hot mess, theologically and biblically. It doesn't make any sense. No, you were born in Adam. God decided before the foundation of the world, everybody that gets into Christ is going to make it, right? You're born in Adam. You get saved. God puts you in Christ. Now your fate is sealed, right? Now you're signed, sealed, and delivered. Now, keep reading. Romans 8, verse number 15. The Bible says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You see, Romans 8, 15 says that God put something in your heart the day you got saved that lets you know that you're His and He's yours. But it hasn't come to fruition yet. You haven't seen that come yet. Don't you feel that groaning inside of you? Right? That feeling that when you're walking with God, this world is not my home. I want to get out of here. I mean, am I the only one? Something in you is just like, I want to break out of this thing and I want to be somewhere where I really feel like I belong. Because you know what, brethren? You're a misfit down here. You don't really belong down here. Uh, you're, you're, I mean, some of you are more misfits than others, but you're, we're all, and in, the, by, in Christ, we're all misfits. We don't belong. This, this world is not our home. Have you not had the distinct feeling that someone else is living inside of you since you've been saved? Amen. Right? You walk with God. You commune with that Bible. You just walk around every day in fellowship with God. Even if it's like you're not praying three hours a day, you know somebody's living in there. God sent a spirit. The Bible says in Galatians, He hath sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts, whereby we cry, crying, Abba, Father, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, assuring you that you're His. But what's that all about? Why do He do that? He put that Holy Spirit inside of you because one day He's going to finish that adoption. One day He's going to fulfill all those promises. One day He's going to come back and buy the whole vessel. And that, that, that man on the inside is going to come out. And you're going to put this flesh down, and that man on the inside is going to come out. Who's that going to look like? That's going to look like Jesus Christ. That, that new man is going to come out, right? That's the conforming to Christ, right? When it, we're doing it now a little bit at a time, but one day it's going to be over. God's going to say it's finished, and it's going to come forth. Those sons of God are going to come forth. Now look at Romans 8.23. I'll show you that. He sends the Spirit in verse 15, right? You get saved, and you get the Spirit of adoption. See? Not the act of adoption. you got the spirit of adoption. But look at Romans 8, 23. And not only they. Well, let's take it from 22. For we know that the whole creation, that's the physical creation, groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Right? Seals, right? Getting killed in, you know, oil slicks. They're groaning, right? The little bit of grass trying to grow through the cracks on your sidewalk. That's groaning, right? Even lost people, maybe laid up in a hospital bed, they're groaning, right? Even the natural creation is, is groaning in pain, right? But look what it says. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? You know who the first fruits is? The risen Christ. He lives inside of you. Christ the first fruits. He lives inside of you. We have Jesus Christ. Amen? Chong, don't forget it, brother. You got Jesus Christ living inside of you if you're saved. He lives there. 
right? Keep reading. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves so that new man groans inside the old man. What is he waiting for? The adoption. What's the adoption? To wit, the redemption of our body. That's what the adoption is. When this body is finally conformed to Jesus Christ, that's what's been predestinated for you, brother. And that's what's been predestinated for you, sister. Not that God capriciously picked, I like you, I don't like you. Now, they hate when I do that because I make it sound so oversimplified, but that's what you're saying he did. Well, you don't understand because God's will is sovereign. No, that God is stupid. That's not sovereignty. That's stupidity and cruelty to say, I I pick you and I don't pick you. Right? That's not my God. That's not the God of this Bible. That is another God. Amen? Losing likes as we go. It keeps going, right? Now look at Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians 1. Yeah, I don't know if I'm getting to question 2. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Let's do Ephesians 1 again. I want to I help you, brethren. I know I might seem all over the place. I'm, trying, I'm like shooting buckshot right now. Hopefully something sticks. But I want you to be prepared. When these people roll up on you, and they give you these buzzwords like doctrines of grace. When you use someone say doctrines of grace, a little antenna should go. And, and a little crazy Italian named Pat Michani should jump on your shoulder and say, watch out, watch out. See me shaking my head going, sovereignty, because get ready, they're coming. Right? I had I used to street preach with a great brother named Frank. We used to ride the ferry in the morning back when I taught, worked in the city. We'd street preach. We'd, we'd preach on the ferry every single morning. We'd preach on the trains. And I didn't see him for a while. And then he wasn't street preaching anymore with me. Seemed different. And one day on the train ride home on the Staten Island Railroad, he said, well, I've recently come to understand the doctrines of grace. And I said, oh boy, here we go. You know, And you just got to watch those buzzwords, the doctrines of grace and those other buzzwords. Ephesians 1.11, look, let's continue here. It says in Ephesians 1.11, in whom, meaning Christ, that's the whole chapter is about that, Also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. The predestination is connected to that new body, that inheritance, that thing that was promised to you once you got saved. Does God know you would get saved? Yes. He knew you were going to get saved. And he said, I'm going to predestinate the ones that I foreknow that will get saved. I'm going to predestinate them to be just like Jesus Christ and have that inheritance. I use the, uh, I use the analogy a lot because it makes sense in my head. The airline said, whosoever gets on this plane will get to the destination. That's the predestination. The pre destination, right? The predestination is you get in Christ, you're getting to where God wants you to be. And the destination of God's predestination is to be conformed to the image of Christ's image. That Christ's image is the destination. Now you want to ask me why we have to become like Christ? I'll tell you that in another question. Because just look up at the night sky and God's big universe. Somebody's got to reign with Christ. All those planets up there, they need some little Christ. They need some people that could be mediators for the people that are going to populate the universe. And guess what? When you're finally conformed to His image and you're ruling and reigning with Him, what do you think that means? To be a joint heir, to be conformed to His image. You think about that for a while. Let me know what that's all about. But there's a reason why God is going to conform you to the image of Christ. Why? Because there's a lot of work to do when this whole thing is over. 
It ain't going to be fishing in the celestial river. It's going to be a kingdom that expands forever and ever and ever and has no end. And we're going to be ruling and reigning with him, and we're going to be conformed to that image with Christ, right? That is the pre, that is the destination. Now, the question becomes then, what, what about Pharaoh? Didn't God predetermine what Pharaoh would do? Let's look at some of those verses. Let's look at Exodus 3. This might be just what we just deal with tonight. I'll save. I, got, we could do, I could do as many weeks. I got no curriculum, so we could do as many weeks of questions as we want. Exodus 3. Because it's honest. You understand, the Bible is written in such a way that it will help you or it will hurt you. The Bible is purposely written to expose your preconceived ideas, your prejudices, and as Ezekiel puts it, the idols in your heart. The most dangerous thing you could ever do with this Bible is come to it with your mind made up. Come to the Bible with your mind made up. You know what God will do? He will answer you according to the idols in your heart. He will give you the rope to just finish yourself off. I use the example a lot. Jehovah's Witnesses started with Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell came to a King James Bible like you hold in your hand with a preconceived idea that there is no hell. And he said, I will prove from this Bible there is no hell. You know what God did? He started an entire religion based on that false preconceived idea. Wipe everything away and come to the Bible empty mind, not empty-minded, but just with an open heart what God has to say. Now, let's look at Pharaoh, Exodus 3, because Pharaoh is an interesting character. And a lot of these Calvinist reformers, they seize upon Pharaoh. He's like their poster boy for what they're trying to talk about. And in Exodus chapter 3, we'll jump in at verse number uh, 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 19. This is when God is commissioning Moses to go in and speak to Pharaoh. And he says, And I am sure, this is God speaking, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in, my, in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and on and on. So look at Exodus 4. Look at verse 21. Exodus 4, verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. God is right there. What do you do with that? Did he make him do it? That's what they turn to. Here's what's happening. God is prophesying what would happen. He's not predetermining what would happen. God is prophesying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Is that a lie? No, he did that. Was Pharaoh going to let him go? No. The only reason why you struggle with this, brother or sister, is because you're coming to those verses with the preconceived idea that God has predestinated us in eternity past. And if you read that verse in light of your preconceived idea, you find the evidence that you're looking for. It's called circular reasoning, right? You're kind of reasoning in a circle. Well, God... No, all, I have no problem with that verse, do you? God's saying, I'm telling you, Pharaoh's not going to let you go. Don't be disappointed, Moses, but go tell him. It was a legitimate offer to Pharaoh. Look at Exodus 9, I'll show you it was a legitimate offer to Pharaoh. He didn't pre, let me say it this way. God prophesied what would happen. Amen. He didn't predetermine what did happen. Can I say that again? God prophesied or predicted what would happen, but He didn't predetermine what did happen. 
Now look at uh, Exodus 9, verse 33. See it? Exodus 9, 33. I think I read this a few weeks ago. Let's read it again. Exodus 9, 33. And Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread abroad his hands unto the Lord, and the thunders and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he, what's that next word? He sinned. Please explain to me what sin is if God has determined what you're already going to do. How do you sin if God made you do it? Wouldn't that make God the author of sin? Some of these Calvinist boys get real tripped up when they follow their predestination all the way to its logical end. No, Pharaoh sinned. That means he consciously chose to transgress God's commandment. That's what sin is. It's unrighteousness. And notice it says, it says Pharaoh, let me read it with you here. I want you to see this. It's so important. It says, he sinned yet more. So he's been doing this all along. He sinned yet more. And it says, and number one, notice first, hardened his heart. Now, in that first part of that verse, I'm going to go full tilt English teacher on you now. That means that Pharaoh is the actor. Pharaoh is the subject of that action. Who hardened his heart? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh did something. But then what does it say in the next next verse? Right? I said this a few weeks ago, but let's look at it again. It says in verse 35, And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. That is not something Pharaoh did. When you have that, was hardened, it means it's implied by God. That's what we call passive in the English, not the Greek, the English. That means Pharaoh was the actor in the beginning. He hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart in response. And God prophesied, I will harden his heart. But guess what? Pharaoh was the knucklehead first. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God said, I told you I'm going to harden it because you're going to harden it first. And that's what he did. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But God knew this was going to happen beforehand. Doesn't mean he made him do it. It just means he knew it was going to happen. Can I give you an illustration of how this works before your brains start to hurt a little bit? we got a library here. Hopefully they have a decent history book in here. If I flip through a history book, I'm standing outside of time. And I could flip through history. Ming Dynasty, French Revolution, Moses, Jesus, Paul, you. He just flipped through the pages. God can flip through the pages. He stands outside of history the way you look at a history book. And if I flip through the pages of a history book, I can tell you what's going to happen on page 395 when you're on page 80. But I didn't make 395 happen. I just know what happens on page 395, even though we're on page 80. I didn't make it happen, did I? I just know what happened. Right? If we read about the Civil War, I'm going to tell you, well, here it comes, you know. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Here's what Grant's going to do, and here's what Lee's going to do. You say, oh, my, are you making that happen? Did you predetermine what they're doing? No, I'm outside of history, and I can tell you what's going to happen. I'm not making it happen. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. I've got foreknowledge. I know beforehand. If George Washington could step out of time, he could tell you what he would do at Yorktown. But he wasn't controlling what the British did. 
right? If, if, if Washington could step out and be like, oh, what's going on? Where's that cherry tree I didn't chop down? Right? And he pops out here and he says, here's what's going to happen at the Battle of Yorktown. But the British are doing things on their own free will. But he's giving you his foreknowledge he knows beforehand because he's outside of time. From cover to cover of your Bible, God never overpowers your power of choice. Cover to cover. Take Solomon. Solomon's a sad character. Solomon is the only type of Christ that is also a type of Antichrist. Because the Antichrist and Jesus Christ will be so close, it's going to be real hard to tell them apart. Ever read where Solomon got 666 talents of gold? You ever read that? The whole story turns after that, but that's a whole other lesson. But anyway, you know what Solomon is? Solomon has promised all these things. Was God lying? Did God not know that Solomon would turn his heart away from God? Of course he did. But the offer is legitimate. The offer is legitimate. I know some of you that makes your brain hurt, but don't. It doesn't have to make your brain hurt. God knows, but you have choice. Remember what I said? It's like those railroad tracks. God's free, your free will and God's foreknowledge are like railroad tracks. They look like they hit down the road, but nope, they're just running side by side. They just run side by side. They never contradict. Foreknowledge does not equal predestination. Go to 1 Samuel 23. It's a great passage that a good brother reminded me of, and I was like ecstatic. 1 Samuel 23. All right, 1 Samuel 23. Ready? Here's a great example that shows that just because God knows what would happen in the future doesn't mean he's predetermining it, right? 1 Samuel 23, verse 5. David's on the run, right? He's on the run from Saul. Saul wants to kill him, type of the flesh, persecuting the spiritual man, David. And uh, so David, verse 5, and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah. And Saul said, God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring hither the ephod, right? Because they would commune with God with the Urim and the Thummim in there. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Verse 12, then said David, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbore to go forth. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds, and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. Please notice that God knew what would happen beforehand, but God didn't make it happen. David had choice. Hey God, if I go down there, are they going to get me? Yes, they are. Yes, they will. You know what? I'm not going down there. David made a good choice. And David chose to flee 
based on God's foreknowledge, based on the foreknowledge that God graciously shared with him, David chose, and watch this, his future changed. It wasn't predetermined. It wasn't written in the stars somewhere. It wasn't fate. It was foreknowledge and man's free will running side by side, no conflict. Go to Proverbs 1. Does that make sense? Look at Proverbs 1. Let me show you this. You know what happens when we know, when God tells us about something beforehand, you know what we're supposed to do? Listen. Make a smart choice, right? You know, if I say, if you bang your hand with that hammer, it's really going to hurt. You know, and I, you bang your hand. Oh, it hurt. How did you know? You made me do it. No, I didn't. I told you beforehand what would happen. Proverbs 1. <laughs> Proverbs 1. Look at this. Proverbs 1. You see, God's foreknowledge is a blessed aspect of His character. It allows us to repent. It allows us to choose wisely. The future isn't written for you yet. It's based on your choice. We get so fatalistic, right? Like we think like there's this, yes, we have a course we run. I get it, but it's based on your choices. If you choose wisely, God will steer you in the right direction. Look at Proverbs 1. It is amazing. It's a gracious God. Proverbs 1. Could you imagine being in that other camp and thinking that God decided before you were even born, before he even spoke a star, that, that your future eternity was fixed? What's the use? Why would you worship a God like that, a maniacal, twisted monster? Why would you get out of bed, Why would you get out of bed if you really believe what you're saying about that, that stuff? Proverbs 1, verse 22 is talking about wisdom. Look what it says. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity and the scorners delight in their scorning? And fools hate knowledge. What? See the next, next two words? Turn you. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. God, what does God do in those first two verses? Guys, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. I'm trying to reprove you. Turn around. Turn around. It's not predetermined. Turn around. David, don't go down to Keila. David, don't go near where Saul is. He's going to get you. Turn around. But watch what happens. Because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said it not, all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. Now this is where God is a side of God that you and I don't like. But the Bible speaks about the goodness and the severity of God. And the goodness of God, like Stephen preached so well on Sunday, leads a man to repentance. But never forget, there is also the severity of God. And the severity of God is the harshest thing you can imagine. And when you transgress God's goodness and you do respite to God's goodness and you scorn God's goodness and you just shake your hand and say, I don't want any of that, you know what God make you feel? Some severity. You take the nation of Israel. We will not have this man to rule over us. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Treblinka, Auschwitz, Dachau. That was the severity of God, man. Did God want that to happen? No. They could have repented. They could have turned. They could have walked right into the millennium 2,000 years ago. But they scorned it. They wanted none of His counsel. You know what God gave them over to? Some harsh stuff. 
He's going to do it again in the tribulation. That was just a preview. Tribulation is going to be some harsh, harsh stuff. Why? He's going to try to get them to turn around and come to him so they can receive him. But you know what? That's a picture of our own life. God will send you prophets. God will send you warnings. God will send you messages. God will send you just time and time again. Man, his mercy is from everlasting. But when you just say no, 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 and you finally say, I don't want any of that stuff, God will say, okay, and he'll step back, and you'll feel that severity. You'll feel that, that like chiding, chastening of God. It's horrible. Nobody wants that. You think God delights in this? But God says, you're going to laugh at my book? God says, I'll laugh at you. That's what he says right there, right? I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh, as a desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, the picture of the second coming of Christ, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof, therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Now doctrinally, that's a picture of some people that never repented during the tribulation and Jesus Christ comes back and they just are destroyed and wiped out and he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Right? The Lord will have them in derision. But in our personal lives, God wants us to repent. How did this whole passage start? Verse 22, turn you at my reproof. You've got a choice. Isn't that amazing? I was talking to some kids the other day doing a little Bible lesson, and I was saying, man, isn't it amazing you have choice? Baking soda doesn't have choice. Your dog doesn't have choice. Amoebas don't have choice. Giraffes don't have choice. Fish don't have choice. They have instinct. They have impulse. They have biological heredity and all that stuff programmed into the DNA for survival. But you can choose right and you can refuse wrong that's amazing that to me is just absolutely amazing listen god's foreknowledge never negates your free will if you don't trust jesus christ you know what you will burn in hell you will burn in hell i don't say care if you sat in church since you were spud to the time you're an old person if you never trusted christ yourself you will burn forever you know what that is foreknowledge. You know what that foreknowledge is supposed to make you do? Turn. <laughs> Turn to God. <laughs> if you don't submit to God's Word, you know what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ? You will lose everything you worked for in your life. Everything you valued, everything you struggled over, everything you just esteemed so highly, all those riches, God says, that wood, hay, stubble, I'm going to light it up at the judgment seat of Christ. God is gracious enough to give you the foreknowledge so you don't walk off the precipice and crash. You don't sit there and go, why is God like that? Why is God like that? No, He's telling you, turn. Son, you, Mr. Mishine, your son has leukemia. How dare you say that to me? If you don't take treatment, eventually his bone marrow is going to produce all this bad stuff. It's going to crowd out the hemoglobin. It's going to crowd out uh, his white blood cells. It's going to crowd out the platelets. He'll bruise. He'll bleed. He'll get fatigued. He won't be able to function as a human being. The nerve of that doctor. You made me get leukemia. You made me. No, he didn't. I'm telling you, this is the condition. Take a turn, get help, get treatment. Amen. And now he's dropping three pointers on my head again, right? So God is gracious enough to tell you the condition so you could turn. Amen. Let me finish this point up here. Now, 
Go to 1 Timothy 2. We're going to finish this. We're not going to do the second question because I'll take another five or ten minutes here and that'll be it. Uh, go to 1 Timothy 2. So this question about does God's foreknowledge equate to predestination? The answer is no. They're different. But what can we learn from this as we study our Bible? Right? I'm glad you took notes. I'm glad you're listening. I appreciate your kind attention. What can this question teach us or remind us about when it comes to studying our Bible properly? I'll give you some takeaways, two takeaways about good Bible study. Here's the first thing. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, you know what this question teaches us? You never change the Bible to fit your beliefs. You never change the Bible to fit your beliefs or your theological system. 1 Timothy chapter 2, great passage. Let's look at it. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. Let's look at verse 1. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Right? 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, as <clears throat> Paul writing to Timothy, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Right? All men. What does all mean? It means all, right? Right. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. What did we just say? Never change the Bible to fit your beliefs. And if you hear a verse like that, or you give somebody a verse like that, you see very clearly God's will is for how many men to be saved? All men to be saved. He says, pray for all, because God wants all to be saved. And in verse 6, it says He died for all. He couldn't make it any clearer. God's will is for all men to be saved and all men to know the truth. But if you roll up on somebody, you start getting thoughts in your head, or somebody starts telling you, if you have to explain that verse away by claiming that all doesn't mean all in that passage, but it means all of the elect, all, all of the predestinated The Lord is not willing that any should perish. Oh, no, that means any of the elect. When you've got to start doing that, you have stepped in a a viper's den. You have stepped off the line of sound doctrine, and now you are in error, right? If you have got to add to the Bible, Deuteronomy 4, Revelation 22, or take away from the Bible, Genesis 3, you are going to end up in a satanic lie. And Reformed theology, I'll look right into the camera, and I hope you're listening to me, is a devil's lie. It is a slippery, pious lie. It's, it's, it's wicked because you know what? It's as an angel of light. You know what? The, the, the drunkards roll up on you at the rescue mission. I know who I'm dealing with. I can engage you straight on. They're much more open to the gospel than an overeducated, slick, pious, two-faced serpent with a forked tongue. A devil, right, who's preaching a damnable doctrine. You say, Pat, you get so strong. I'm telling you guys, they're coming. They're coming. They're invading, quote-unquote, evangelical churches and flipping them every day. They're becoming reformed, reformed, reformed. They've hijacked the Reformation. They hijacked the Reformation. That's one big thing to learn. 
Here's the second big thing, too. We'll, we'll go home on this one. When you're studying your Bible, not if, but when, when you study your Bible, never take an obscure passage over a clear passage. You never interpret an, obs- an obscure passage ahead of a clear passage. You'll always end up in a mistake. In other words, you never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. You never take a passage that's like sketchy and weird and foggy and I'm not sure what's going on there and use that in place of a verse that is clear and unequivocal. Right? So, maybe you're wondering about Pharaoh. Man, these Reformed people, they take you into Romans 9 and they got vessels fitted for destruction. What if God, willing to, and they get in all this hypothetical stuff and you don't even know what's going on in Romans 9. It's not about personal salvation. It's about nations that were going to happen in Genesis 25. And they get in this weird, murky road about what if this and what if that. And look at Pharaoh and how about, how about some verses that are clear? Can I get, let's end on some verses that are clear. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, all right? I'll give you uh, five verses and then we'll go home. Deuteronomy chapter 30. You want some clear verses? If you're wondering if you have a free will, right? Don't run to the weird, murky verse and put that ahead of the clear, unequivocal verse. That's bad Bible study. You're going to end up in error. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse number 19. Look what God says in Deuteronomy 30, 19, right? God says... I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. What is God doing there? That's a clear command to choose life. Is there anything unclear in that? Right? God is commanding you to choose. Well, that's just... God says, choose life. Here's life. Here's death. Here's blessing. Here's cursing. But over here in Romans 9, it says, what if God, you know, willing to endure these vessels fitted for destruction, when you know what that means, then ask me the question. But please don't take this murky, foggy thing that you heard R.C. Sproul or Paul Washer or John Piper, I'll name all the names, talk about, and you're going to say, well, they said this message about that, and they said it means this. Yeah, but do you know what it means? Well, I'm not sure, but choose life, right? God says, easy, right? Some things are hard to be understood, right? Tell me what the Antichrist looks like. I don't know yet. I look in the mirror sometimes, I wonder, right? But salvation... He puts that on the low shelf, <laughs> right? Crystal clear. Choose life, all right? Could you imagine the thief on the cross up there? Lord, remember me. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're in the elect, buddy. You know, I don't know. <laughs> imagine him up there. <laughs> this man has done nothing amiss. I really hope I was predestinated before the foundation of the world. You know, I'm up here. I guess it's crazy talk. And they'll look at you and say, oh, because you just don't understand, you simple Arminian. I'm not Arminian. I'm Italian, okay? Uh, let's keep going. Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Joshua 24. So a clear command to choose life. Isn't that what the gospel call is? We go out on this pre- uh, preach on the street. We go out to Barnegat maybe and put some gospel tracks. We go to Walmart, give out gospel tracks. Whatever we do. Are we trying to make it hard for sinners? Are we trying to make it confusing for sinners? How many people remember Harold Camping from years ago? Harold Camping, family radio. I hope he's in heaven. He might very well be in hell. I don't know. I don't know a man's heart, but he was a bad dude. He had some bad doctrine. He used to publish a track called Does God Love You? 
You know, we hand out, we hand out things that say God loves you. We say, for God so loved the world. This track was God loves you. Does God love you? And it basically talked about, well, you should struggle and pray and maybe you'll see if you're in the elect. I mean, could you imagine being a guy at the end of your rope? When I got saved, I was at the end of my rope. Could you imagine somebody handing you a gospel track, does God love you? At the end of it, the invitation is, struggle, pray, wrestle with God, and maybe He'll reveal to you that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. I'm just going to run my head into a wall until I get knocked out, because that's painful to even contemplate. Look at Joshua 24, 15. We all know this. We got this on our little placards in our living rooms, right? And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's another clear one. Isn't that one clear? A clear command to choose your Lord. You want to serve mammon? Are you going to serve Christ? Choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Keep going with me. Go to John 7, 17. Here's another one. You never take an obscure passage over a clear passage. You're always going to end up in error. John 7, 17. John 7, 17. <clears throat> Here's Jesus Christ speaking. Let's take it from verse uh, 17. Yeah. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, whether I speak of myself. Is there anything slippery about that? It's a clear challenge that you can choose. If you take the Word of God and put it to the test, you know what you're going to do? You're going to find out that it's from God. You try it. If you're not saved here tonight, you're watching home, you're not saved, you take the doctrine of salvation and you put it to the test, you know what you'll find out? You'll find out that God will make you a new creature in Christ. You trust in God with the problem, you trust in God with the heartache, you keep laying it at His feet, you know what you're going to find out? That God has got your tears in a bottle. They're all in His book. He's not going to forget, He will not forsake them that know Him. Knowing that weight on him will be a shame. He's like saying, if you'll do it, you'll know. Right? Keep going. Let's go to Luke 13. So we've had a clear command to choose life, Deuteronomy 30, 19. We've had a clear command to choose your Lord, Joshua 24, 15. We've had a clear challenge that you can choose, and if you choose God's ways, you'll see God work, John 7, 17. Let's look at Luke 13, verse 34. Luke 13, verse 34. How about a clear confession that you can choose or reject God? You want to see Jesus pointed out for us? Let's see if there's anything slippery about this. Jesus Christ is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Think about that. If Jesus Christ had predestinated Jerusalem to get destroyed, what's all the tears about? He's weeping over the city. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets. Why would God send prophets to His people if He already predestinated what they were going to do? It's just, when you go down this road, it is crazy. See, they want to get it so they show you how smart they are. Split your church and get them to join their grace fellowship, right? Or their orthodox, whatever it's called, their whatever name they study, their reform, yuckety yuck, right? They want to, but if they don't even believe what they say they believe. Now, keep reading with me. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. 
That's Jesus saying, the Father wanted to gather you under His ring, right? Exodus 19, like on eagle's wings, right? That's a picture of the second coming and what He do for Israel. He wanted to be that Savior. He wanted to gather you in like that, like a, like a mama hen gathering her little chickadees. You know what? And He says, but you wouldn't do it. Why? Because they had a free will. They could choose to follow or they could choose to reject. And they chose to reject. And Jesus was weeping over their rejection of God's goodness towards His nation and God's offer to his nation. Last verse, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Brethren, when someone rolls up and starts trying to talk you out of stuff like that, hold on to your wallet and step away slowly, and when you get at least six feet away, run. Right? Because they are going to turn your mind inside out and try to get you all twisted about your Bible and start arguing in silence. They take the silence of God and try to plug things in there. Well, God meant this, and God meant that. I heard a preacher say one time, did you know Peter killed his mother-in-law with a twenty-two caliber shotgun? No, he didn't. Well, the Bible doesn't say he didn't do it, so how do you know, right? right? But that's the reasoning, right? Well, they start, when you start arguing from silence, you're going to end up in error. Let's just deal with what God actually says, right? Not what you think he says. Well, if I were God, here's the problem. People say, well, if God had all this power... Why wouldn't he predetermine it? I don't know. Ask him when you get there. I just know what the Bible says. God says, choose. God says, if. God says, you have a free will from cover to cover. Last verse, Acts 7. Stephen, not my son, but Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin. And he had this, I mean, he rocked them so hard with this message that they rocked him right back. And in Acts chapter 7, Look at the invitation. Man, you think I get salty. You want to talk about invitation. Woo! (laughs) Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He's just given them the whole history of Israel. Why? To show them that from their formation to where they were now, you've resisted, you've resisted, you've resisted, you've resisted, you've resisted. The whole thing is a rebuke of their rejection of God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that clan that was listening, they knew it. And they're steaming. They're grinding their teeth. They're ready to kill this kid. And in Acts 7, 51, here's the invitation. Every head bowed, every eye closed. (laughs) Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. There's a clear consequence for resisting God's will. Make no mistake, you've got choice. Saved person tonight, you've got choice. Lost person tonight, you've got choice. That choice doesn't mean God doesn't also have a choice. You choose to reject God, God says, there's a consequence. And Stephen looks at this crowd and says, you're resisting God, you're resisting God, you're resisting God, you're going to be destroyed, just like your fathers, you're going to be destroyed. And then what did they do? They all repented? No. They blasted the preacher. They got rid of the preacher. They tried to shut off the messenger. Right? That's a scary, scary state to be. But it's a clear consequence for resisting God's will. So I got good news and bad news to end on. Good news is, your fate is is in your hands. (laughs) I'm not saying like it's not in God's hands, but God says, choose. (laughs) 
Which way you go tonight is based on what you do with what God has told you. With the foreknowledge of God, you could choose. God will equip you. God will enable you. God will help you. It is ultimately God's power working through you. But you've got to yield. You've got to choose. You've got to submit. That's the good news, that you can get in on with God. You can, like, yield with God and get in the yoke with God and see God do things amazing and exceeding abundantly through you. The bad news is there's a consequence if you reject Him. You can't have the good news without the bad news. The good news is, is you can choose. The bad news is you're going to be accountable for the choices that you make. That's the thing. And that's the part that people don't like, the accountability. God may already know what you're going to do, but you have a choice. So choose, brethren. Lost person tonight, choose. Choose to trust Jesus Christ. Saved person tonight, choose to follow Jesus Christ, and you'll see, if any man will do my will, he'll know the doctrine. Now, I got another good question that I didn't get to tonight. I won't, but it was a good question. How can the devil destroy a church? So I'll give you that little preview for next time. And uh, I, got, I got some good notes on that and some other questions. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads.